Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 99, my burb of the year 2022. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons, such as Jenny and Miyaki. Hope I pronounced that correctly. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Yes, it is that time of year again. It is October, meaning here in New Zealand we have the Forest and Bird Bird of the Year Award has come back up and we're all allowed to vote now for our favouritest, mostest, bestest bird ever. Uh, of course, last year we had the interesting edition of the Pika Pika Tauroa, which was the uh, long-tailed bat, um, which did end up winning it, which was controversial to say the least um but this year the bat has either been banned or voluntarily not stood up again um depending on who you ask and also the kakapo has also been disbarred from uh, entering this year as well as it has uh won twice already so they determined that it was no longer allowed or at least not this year anyway to um win for a third time so of course, um, if you have been around this podcast for a long time, you know uh, what this is all about and how it's going to go, but for those of you who are here for the first time, which I suspect, given we've had an increase in listeners over the last sort of six months or so, that may be quite a few of you, um, what we do here, uh, during the Bird of the Year, we talk about one of the contestants um, and basically talk about who they are, what they're like, and all about them. Because if you didn't also didn't know, um, my background is not in history, it's actually in conservation. So this kind of stuff is actually what I do for a living when I'm not reading really old and dry books from really racist guys. <laughs> so this is actually kind of part of my wheelhouse of what my, um, I guess you could say, what my formal training is and what my day job is. Um, so this is kind of, I guess, just to give you another aspect of kind of New Zealand uh culture, New Zealand uh, natural history they might say, um, and just to generally teach you about something that's uh, interesting and unique uh, about New Zealand, which most people, you know, when they think about interesting and unique things about New Zealand, one of the things at the top of the list is usually the environment, the birds, and that sort of thing. So today we're going to talk about what Forest and Bird have deemed an underbird, which is a lesser known bird, I guess a bird that you wouldn't, you know, most people wouldn't know about, you know, we've talked about Kākāpō, Takahe, you probably know. What we're going to talk about today is the mātata, or the fern bird in English. Uh, the Latin name, or I guess the, the uh, rather the scientific name, is Pudaitis punctatus, um, which I probably have not pronounced that correctly because I'm not very good at Latin or Greek. Um, so this is a bird that is endemic to New Zealand, which is the kind of level above native, if you will. Native means that it is naturally found here. Endemic also means that, but additionally it means it's only found here. You can't find matata anywhere else in the world, um, you can only find them in New Zealand, which is all, it gives us more reason why we should care about these birds, why we should try and protect them, because we want to make sure that our endemic species don't go extinct, because if they go extinct here, then they're gone forever, we can't find them anywhere else. Um, over 50% or roughly about 50% of New Zealand's uh, native species are also endemic, so it's really, really important to try and um, protect them. 
So as we uh, normally do, we go through a, a kind of a basic list of things um, to talk about them, or a basic format. And the first one is the NZTCS, which is the New Zealand Threat Classification System, which basically determines how threatened they are, how much danger are they in. So the North Island and South Island Matata, which is the ones you're most likely to encounter um, because they're on the mainland, are classified as being at risk declining, though it also slightly depends on the subspecies as well. They're at risk, they are declining, but it's better than some of the other ones which we've talked about in the past, which are nationally threatened. Um, so that's, you know, kind of the, the step down or up, I guess, depending on how you look at it. But that's the, the worst, you know, that's a worse classification than at risk declining. But they are still at risk and declining. So unlike uh, other birds we've talked about, um, as I said, they are nationally critical or nationally endangered. So these guys are doing a bit better, but kind of only just. And it probably wouldn't take much to see them head into those, you know, more threatened categories. What do they look like? What, what are these birds? What do they look like? This is an audio format. I can't just show you a picture, although I will put a picture up in the show notes so that you can see a picture if, you know, you want to click on that and see what they look like as long as you're not driving or something. So what they look like is roughly roughly the size of a sparrow, so about 18 centimetres in length, which includes quite a long tail. They have brown plumage above with white below, so their chest is kind of white while their back is kind of brown, if you will. The tail has loosely barbed feathers that give them a bit of a kind of tattered look, and they also have a pointed grey bill with long pinky red legs. So if you can kind of gather, they're well camouflaged and as such can be difficult to see. And in fact, they are more often heard than seen because they have quite a unique call, which we'll talk about in a minute. They vaguely look similar to a dunnock, which is an introduced species to New Zealand. Um, and I believe it's from probably England, um, as most things are. But if you're a European and you know what a dunnock looks like, that's a reasonable comparison. So they're kind of a brownie, whitish bird, um, you know, that, that camouflages well into the kind of reedy and wetlandy areas that it likes to hand out, hang out in. So the closest relations to the Matata, so there are five subspecies. There's the North and South Island Matata, as we mentioned before. There's also the Stewart Island, Codfish Island, or Whenuaho, um, and the Snares Island Matata. They all have varying degrees of uh, risk, ranging from naturally uncommon to threatened nationally vulnerable, which is the Stewart Island subspecies is doing the worst there. There is also the Chatham Island Matata, um, which was a separate species but is now extinct. The two species of um, Matata, that is the North and South Island one, were previously in their own uh, special genus, Baudelaria, um, but like a lot of species that we find uh, recently, they did a bunch of genetic analysis because that's, you know, that's kind of the cool thing to do nowadays. Um, and they found that they were actually more closely related to the Australian spinifex bird and to two grass bird species that are found in Australia uh, and New Guinea. So you may actually, if you do go Googling these guys, you may find some references or some sources say that they are in Baudelaria. Um, just know that that's not that would indicate that that source perhaps isn't quite as up-to-date um, as you might expect. So, calls. What does it sound like? 
birds make lots of noise. Um, these birds, I guess, do make a, a reasonable amount of noise. Um, not quite, perhaps, as much as, say, a tui or riro riro or, you know, perhaps a kākāpō making his booming noise, but they often hang out in pairs and they'll call back and forth. So that's usually what you're hearing. Um, and NZ Birds Online, which is a website where I've gotten most of this information from, and they in turn get most of their information from DOC, um, which is the Department of Conservation here in New Zealand. Um, so NZ Birds Online co- kind of describes their call as being a utic noise. Um, but in general, they make short, high-pitched sounds when communicating with one another, so that's in the peers, uh, generally calling out to mates with different types of calls. Now, the UTIC, it's slightly different to the ones that they show on the NZ Birds online. The ones on the website, um, which we'll play in a minute, you know, they're quite short, sharp, and um, you get sort of like a one click and then the other really quickly. A lot of people mistake that for being one bird making two short kind of tweets, if you will, um, in quick succession. What it is, is one bird making a, a call and then the other mated pair replying back really quickly. So here is the call of the Matata. So the next thing we'll talk about is what do they eat? Um, Birds eat all sorts of different things. Um, These birds in particular could probably be described in one one word, which is insectivore, which is pretty much what it sounds like. They eat insects. Um, Or rather, they eat bugs. Um, They don't eat exclusively insects. Um, They do like to eat things like caterpillars. Um, They'll eat flies, beetles, moths, and they'll eat spiders as well. Um, But pretty much any sort of small invertebrates that they find, um, you know, bugs and things, um, that's all fair game to them really. Uh, They have also been known to eat things like seeds and fruits, um, but they're not quite as keen on those. Uh, Bugs seem to be their more preferred diet. Um, There's even one case of a matata eating uh, a skink, which is quite interesting considering most skinks in New Zealand are probably too big for them. Um, So it must have been perhaps a baby skink, Um, but that was probably more an exception, perhaps a uh, opportunistic kill, if you will, an opportunistic um, feed, um, rather than a you know, something that they would regularly eat. Um, But by and large, they eat bugs and and that sort of stuff. Where do they live? Um, So rather than, um, I split normally split this into where do they live and what's their habitat? Um, So for where do they live, where do we find them uh, in New Zealand? So they're common um, on the west coast, that is the west coast of the South Island, and there are pockets in the, uh, sorry, there are pockets in Northland and Stewart Island. Um, they did used to be common in Wairarapa, Wellington and Canterbury, um, but they're not found there any longer, um, except for one place in Wellington. Um, although having a chat to um, one of my workmates, he used to work for Doc for a very long time, he does tell me that they can be found in one other place in Wellington as well. So again, that information might be slightly out of date. Um, although that is, to be fair, anecdotal evidence, um, so maybe shouldn't be trusted quite as much. Um, but 
by and large, you don't find them um, in Wadded Upper, Wellington, or Canterbury. They are also common on Great Barrier Island um, and have been introduced to Tiritiri Mātangi, which is um, where you find a lot of birds um, that have been uh, translocated to islands. Um, the first uh, year we did Bird of the Year uh, on this podcast, we talk about the hihi, um, and that is also found on Tiritiri Mātangi as well, if I remember correctly. But they're mostly absent from the islands uh, off the coast of the North Island, um, as well as the Marlborough Sounds uh, and Fiordland. Um, So they're only really found in very specific areas, and that kind of leads into their habitat and why they're only found in these specific areas. Um, And I kind of mentioned it before, but they are found in dense, low wetland vegetation. So they're like a very specific kind of uh, habitat, um, you know, the reeds and and, um, things that do well in wetland environments and that sort of thing. They are known to like dry shrub and tussock habitat, um, which is only really in the far north and outlying islands. They're also keen on reed beds in salt marshes, which are mostly found uh, in the west coast, Otago and Southland. Um, and they also like dense kiakia, um, which is near Haast. Um, so again, areas that are um, quite wet, um, you know, th- they like to hang out in plants that are, um, you know, tightly packed and do well, you know, partially submerged in water, basically. And we'll get into the kind of threats and that sort of thing. But if you're even kind of halfway uh, or even got a little toe dipped into the ecology space or into the conservation space and that sort of thing, um, the very obvious threat is their uh, loss of habitat. Wetlands are probably, if not the most threatened habitat, um, possibly in New Zealand, possibly the entire world. Um, Wetlands don't do well with... uh, urban areas you can't build towns and buildings and things on wetland Uh, they don't tend to last very long so they're usually the i guess the first to go um being not very productive um at least not productive in the sense of uh shall we say western capitalism so they do uh you know the that specific area that they that habitat that they do like is quite under threat um so that that already is is quite a big thing So that leads quite nicely into how many are there? What's the population like? And unlike a lot of other birds, um, where a lot of studies have been done to find out, you know, how many are there, how bad are they doing, or how well are they doing, um, Matata don't really have that. I guess no one's really taken perhaps enough of a interest or or perhaps there's just you know classically there's just not enough funding um for anyone to go out and really find this out in a really large and i guess more meaningful way there have been um some studies um made and or some estimates made but not a huge amount um so for example there's potentially 1500 peers on snares island um, which is about eight peers per hectare yeah, I mean, I don't really know how many Marthata are meant to be in an area, so eight pairs seems low, <laughs> I guess. For a for a bird that's, you know, only 18 centimetres long, which is not very long, that includes the tail, um, the eight pairs per hectare doesn't seem like a lot, considering a hectare is a reasonably large amount of area. 
Um, Whangarei is thought to have 2.4 pairs per hectare, and the west coast is uh, thought to have about 3 birds per hectare. Um, so that's even less. That's not 3 pairs, that's 3 birds. Um, that's 3 individuals. So by and large, um, they have quite low numbers, um, but we have brought species back with much worse population counts. Um, the kākāpō was down to something like less than 50, I think, or maybe around 50. Um, the, the Chatham Island Black Robin, which we talked about in 2020, I think it was, um, they had one pair, one, you know, two individuals, male and female, and they brought it back from that. Of course, that does have its own problems, um, you know, uh, inbreeding, depression, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but we have we have brought back species with much worse odds than fifteen hundred peers, which is three thousand individuals. One of the uh, things we like to talk about the most um, <laughs> on these is what's their breeding like? How do they like to mate? Um, is there anything interesting about how they like to reproduce? And for Matata, um, there's nothing, I guess, terribly exciting compared to, say, the hihi, which is the only bird that likes to uh, mate in a missionary position, <laughs> if you will. Um, Matata generally breed in spring and summer. And I guess, I'm, I, I'm not sure if this is common in New Zealand birds. I haven't found it in many um, New Zealand sort of native species. Um, but they make a, quote, deep woven feather-lined cup of fine grass or sedge leaves in dense vegetation, usually less than one meter above ground or water, end quote. So basically, they make a nest. They make a deep nest, um, which is quite cool. Again, I'll put up a picture on the um, in the show notes if you want to give it a look. And it's quite a cool, um, you know, little setup. Again, they've you know they've got these sedge and um, and and feathers and things, and it's all quite. Um, quite cool and they you know they sit in it and yeah you know it's it's, it's I guess um you don't really maybe I'm wrong but you I from my, my experience I don't see a lot of birds that make cool little nests that sit in you know off the ground a bit and stuff because generally in New Zealand um I guess this is the the reason why is you know these birds evolutionarily did not need didn't have a reason to sit up high in the in the trees with a nest. Um, part of the advantage of that is to get away from ground-dwelling predators um, like stoats and rats and that sort of thing. Which, when they, you know, when these birds were evolving prior to human arrival, they didn't have any of that. They didn't have stoats and rats and or mustelids in general or rodents of any kind or any of those carnivores that sit on low to the ground and generally use their olfactory sense, their, their nose, their smell, um, to try and hunt them out. So that's how you get things like takahe and uh, kākāpō, not just being flightless, but also not needing the uh, advantage of having to nest in trees um, or places high up. They, they're more than happy to just nest on the ground because by and large nothing is going to come at them from that angle um you know if they were going to get eaten by something it's probably a bigger bird and that bird is probably going to be attacking them from the air um so it was probably much better to have uh camouflage that camouflaged you into the grasses or or the dirt or wherever you were it's probably better to have camouflage for what was around you 
rather than um, trying to just move yourself somewhere, um, you know, high off the ground um, because that, that doesn't really confer an advantage um, when you're, your you know your predator is coming from the ear necessarily um whereas of course the opposite is the case if you're presented with stoats or rats if you're on the ground they're just going to find you anyway it doesn't matter if um you're camouflaged or whatever because they're not using their eyesight which i guess is the other thing is as birds tend to have quite good eyesight they don't use their nose to find prey they use their eyes rats and stoats don't do that they use their nose so if you're camouflaged for something that's coming from the sky and you're just sitting on the ground doesn't really matter so back to my original point i feel it's kind of unusual that the martata does this that, that they have a nest um that they sit in um that's a you know one meter off the ground sitting in um you know reeds or kia kia or, or anything like that so they have uh, in their clutches, um, usually they will have two individuals um, if the uh, pair, breeding pair is on an island. Uh, but mainland clutches, I guess because they've got slightly more room, um, might have three or four um, in, in a single clutch. Um, I guess, yeah, more, more room, more resources perhaps. Um, not really sure. Unlike other species where one sex does most of the work when it comes to incubation, um, I guess generally the female, but not always, um, childcare for Matata is actually shared between the two parents. And when they actually, you know, kind of share the load and um, do the work between them. Um, so there's no one single sex that does everything or they don't necessarily uh, delegate a single job. Um, where you know the the female sits on the eggs and the male goes out and find food um, there's a bit of chopping and changing a bit of sharing of the of the work and that sort of thing which of course um, you know in human society that's how it should be um, so these guys um, have also uh, adopted that as well so what about their general behavior just random things that i found about their general behavior well by and large um as you might expect from something that hangs out in dense vegetation in a wetland they're not very good at flying despite the fact that they do have um you know they do have wings um and they do um you know they are birds um but of course in typical new zealand fashion where um we don't have we have a lot of birds that don't fly or don't fly very well because again uh, or they do have, um, you know, they don't have predators on the ground. Um, these guys also don't fly very well, and they will scramble through the vegetation, um, you know, which works because it's quite dense, so they can just hop between things and kind of scramble through it um, when you've got, you know, when you're dealing with things like kiaki and reeds and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it lends well to um, scrambling rather than sustained flight, which is probably more suited for either open areas or um forests and rainforests and bush and and that sort of thing which you find in other areas um in in new zealand however they will sometimes fly short distances um just above the vegetation depending on uh whether um you know what they're trying to do where they're trying to go um if i guess if they're trying to catch something if they're trying some, trying to stop something from catch it you know that sort of thing so they generally stay within that dense vegetation. So along with their camouflaged plumage, um, they can be quite difficult to spot. Again, they're usually heard rather than seen. Though they are actually 
often quite curious, which is kind of interesting. Um, they will often get close to humans to investigate them. Um, and one of the things that I've heard from a couple of different people um, is that they are pretty responsive to mimicked calls. So if you're able to um, either, I guess, you know, kind of make their call with your voice or, or whistle it or whatever, or I guess just play it off your um, your phone or something like that. If you do stand still and you wait a wee while and be very quiet, you will often find that they do come out of their, um, you know, the sedge or whatever and come and investigate what's going on. You do have to kind of sit there for a wee while. Um, I have also heard that people will try it a couple of times, not see anything and go, oh, bugger, oh well, guess I'll go home then you do have to be quite patient um you know so if you do want to um try and see one of these the mimic calls is, is probably the best way to do it um given that they are quite curious they do want to investigate these sorts of things um i guess that that's the um kind of wrapped in the fact that they're quite social you know they have you know they're often seen in peers they often hang out in, in mated peers so you know they, they you know if something else calls out they'll go oh that seems kind of interesting. What's going on there? Who's that? Um, so quite social sort of animals that want to investigate what's going on and that sort of stuff. And don't seem perhaps um, terribly concerned with humans. Um, obviously, you're not going to be able to go up and, and grab them or anything like that. And I wouldn't advise you do that for a number of different reasons. Um, but they are, um, you know, they're, they're more than happy to come out and, and give you a look and, and that sort of thing, which is uh, quite exciting. Um, and on the southern islands, Matata will forage around in leaf litter by lifting up a leaf with one foot and then inspecting the underside for bugs. Um, sometimes they will even enter seabird burrows to try and find um, bugs and, and I guess maybe um, any sort of, maybe some sort of like parasites, insect parasites that may be hanging out inside the burrows and that sort of thing. Burrows are generally very unclean places, um, so there's probably a few things hanging out there that they might actually like to have a bit of a nibble on. And even on Snares Island, they've also been observed uh, catching the blowflies that land on sleeping sea lions, which is probably a really good place to get some uh, insects and that sort of thing, um, if they're all just, you know, the sea lions just all hanging out in one place and the flies are doing whatever flies do <laughs> on their back. Um, so that's probably um, a really good place to actually um, get some insects, get some food, um, and you know, it's a bit of a, a positive symbiotic relationship there where the uh, sea lions are getting a nice clean, you know, they don't have to deal with the blowflies and the uh, matata are getting some, you know, getting some food, getting a feed. So in terms of, uh, I guess, how old um, they generally get, um, we don't really know a huge amount about how old they get um just because you know not many studies have been done on these guys however the oldest uh, known martyr was about six and a half years old um and so that's probably a, a good indication of roughly how old they get um depending on i couldn't find any more um information on who this individual was um so depending on whether i guess this individual was in captivity or whether it was found in the wild um that may uh you know th th that would i guess changes where that six and a half years sits on the timeline and what they mean by that is um captive animals tend to live for longer um because captive animals don't have things like predators or are not uh 
are not subject to the whims of nature whereby if there is a drought or a flood or something like that it means that they don't run out of food or anything like that there's always someone there to feed them um, they don't have to deal with the weather too much you know that sort of stuff there's a lot of risk factors that are removed if your animal is in captivity so they just tend to last longer um, as you might expect so if this animal was or if this particular matata was in the wild um then six and a half years old is probably fairly indicative of how old they get um if this particular matata was in captivity six and a half years old is probably on the outside limits of how you know how old or how long they can live for um it might be a couple of years the actual um lifespan might be a couple of years less than that it might be closer to sort of four or five um but again it depends on on what kind of animal this was i find it unlikely that they would have a martyr in captivity that doesn't seem that seems weird to me if they have martyr in captivity but you never know um there's you know there's all sorts of things that people might be doing and particularly with like research and that sort of stuff they might have particular ones in captivity um, so of the birds that have been banded, um, in terms of like what their home range is, um, none of them have moved more than 800 metres um, from basically where they normally hang out. So they normally hang out in actually quite restricted areas. 800 metres in the grand scheme of things is not a big area. Um, you know, if you think you never moved more than one kilometre from where you are now or where your house is um i guess one kilometer is still quite a reasonable amount of distance um but when you're thinking in terms of like other birds in new zealand particularly things like you know coastal birds or seabirds um they travel quite large distances and we've got and we've got birds in new zealand that migrate from new zealand to alaska or new zealand to russia um so you know there are birds in new zealand that travel quite a long distance and so when you think less than one kilometer you know from i guess the house um which is the dense kia kia sort of plot um it's not a lot of it's not a lot of area um that they like to hang out in um but it has been observed that non-banded birds will show up tens of kilometers from the closest known population so it is possible that they do actually perhaps go further than that um it, it may be something like you know once a bird is um once an individual has been paired or has paired with another individual so that you know they become mates and they have um you know they may build a nest have some eggs that sort of stuff they it, it might be that once that kind of happens they just tend to stay in the same area there's no real reason to move away from that but it might be say younger sort of single males if you will might decide actually i'm going to move further away in search of better hunting grounds more you know different mates you know that kind of thing um, again these guys have not had a lot of study done on them so it's possible that all of this could um you know if, if time money that sort of stuff was invested we may figure out why this has occurred um and or maybe they already have and i just couldn't find it that's also entirely possible um but yeah it could be things like that as to why that's occurring is hey maybe they just you know it's different life stages if you will which isn't terribly uncommon in lots of different animals um where we find you know younger single 
um, individuals tend to roam around a bit more um, and tend to be a bit more adventurous, if you will, um, compared to other um, individuals who have a settled home life, shall we say. So what about their research and recovery? Um, so as I kind of mentioned a bit earlier, being a wetland bird, um, you may have guessed that one of their key threats is uh, loss of habitat, mostly due to the draining of wetlands across the country. Um, and so this, again, wetlands are not terribly conducive to, um, you know, putting farms on them or putting houses on them or any number of other things that a capitalist western society might want to do with a plot of land so draining them is usually what they do um however that's not very good for anything that lives in there including the martyr so wetlands are usually one of the first i guess one of the first things to go in terms of land um you know land productivity and that sort of stuff and so i think only less than like one percent of new zealand's wetland is still around which is really bad really really bad so we definitely want to be able to bring that back not just for the martyr but everything else that's in there as well as the fact you know climate change is increasingly becoming more and more of a thing um and wetlands do really well in kind of stabilizing you know the the land and coastal environments and that sort of thing they do a lot of different jobs in terms of how the 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 structure of the land the integrity of the land um when it comes to things like if there's a storm or you know if there's um i think even they do stuff with tsunamis and things there's a lot of stuff that they do that isn't readily obvious um so it's not just because we want to bring back biodiversity we shouldn't just bring bringing back these wetlands because we want the biodiversity to come back although that is a reason they do a lot of other things that you know you don't really notice or perhaps we're only starting to increasingly notice now that climate change is really starting to become more and more of an issue as with most other animals, I guess, native animals in New Zealand, um, that one of the key threats is um, introduced predators, um, particularly mammalian ones. So all the usual suspects, rats, stoats, possums, um, all sorts of other things um, come out and eat their eggs, um, or sometimes the birds themselves. Um, stoats would definitely be capable of eating a fully grown uh, adult martyr. Um, rats yeah probably not depends i guess on the size of the rat i've seen some pretty big fucking rats in my time um so i'd say it's possible but unlikely um they'd probably go more for the eggs um so yeah so they do um you know eat the eggs and eat the individuals which is really really bad again they use their nose um, makes it easier for them to hunt them out and that sort of thing um ship rats in particular are one of the main uh, sort of problem species for martyr um which kind of tracks um ship rats are the out of the three species that we have in new zealand which is the norway rat the uh, ship's rat and the kiori the pacific rat um out of those three the ship's rat is kind of the medium-sized one out of those um i think a norway rat might be too big to get through all the vegetation and stuff a ship rat is probably small enough um you know to get through that vegetation and be able to um, sniff them out and find them uh kiori are probably just too um 
there's not as many of them around anymore they've mostly been uh outcompeted by uh norway and ships rats um so although kiori probably are a problem for them as well um they're probably just at a not a high enough density um compared to say ships rats um that it's you know one of their main problem species stoats and weasels and things mustelids um again ferrets are probably too big um stoats again are probably you know probably just the right size and i don't know about weasels i guess maybe stoats probably outcompete them a bit one of the things i found really really interesting actually was on kundi and jackie lee islands which are off the coast of stewart island um one of the main sort of predators of them there is the weka is the another native species um which was really really interesting because we don't i guess we don't really think about um you know those uh natural and normal interactions or generally natural and normal interactions between predator and prey in new zealand uh you know uh in the new zealand bush and stuff so yeah i don't know if a wicker is typically a predator of the martata but they are they're cheeky bastards so i wouldn't be surprised they have been known um to eat you know eat rats that have been um you know found dead in various places they haven't also been known there's a great um video on uh youtube of a wicked basically chasing around a stoat um and trying to take it out so you know wicker are, are quite sort of mean mean buggers so i wouldn't be surprised if they probably were a natural predator um but i'm not 100 percent sure on that um but yeah interestingly wicker um have been known to cause martyr problems which was um yeah very very interesting for me uh, there were also populations on Great Island and the Alderman Islands, um, which are off the north coast of Cape Ranga and on the uh, eastern coast of Coromandel, respectively. Um, however, those populations likely disappeared due to vegetation succession, um, which is kind of the natural process of larger and larger plants growing and changing the environment over time. Um, so if you've done, uh, or at least here in New Zealand, I think it was in probably year 11 or 12 biology, um, you'll probably know what vegetation succession is. Um, at, at least it was taught when I was at school. I don't know if it still is. I assume so. Um, basically, it's where shrubs and things will um, you know initially grow in you know if you've got a blank field for example you'll get you know tiny little shrubs and things and then you'll get slightly bigger bushes and then eventually you'll get big trees and it changes the environment um, kind of over time and gradually and that sort of thing um, and you know in this case it means that the environment changes in such a way that is not beneficial for these uh, for this species so therefore um, they basically just go extinct um, in these areas um, or go locally extinct I guess is what you could say so that's um, possibly or most likely what occurred there is just the natural progression of the um, of the environment of the vegetation of the plants meant that um, you know their habitat was no longer um, any good for them basically there or they no longer had any um, possible habitat there um, as well um, some birds have been translocated to islands though um, such as north island uh, matata have been translocated to tiritiri matangi as we mentioned earlier uh, they have also been translocated from stewart island to kundi island and Finuaho to putahinu uh, island as well so that's all part um, of doc's kind of effort to try and protect um, 
native species and that sort of thing it's very very common to translocate animals or translocate birds sorry from um the mainland to um islands that are predator free we've wiped out all the rats and the stoats and everything else that um could be bad for them or at least the introduced ones you know that that allows them to flourish a lot more that's a very key part of doc's kind of way of of protecting a native species and it's it's a it's a very important part of the toolkit that they have um, available to them like a lot of other species as well, dogs can be a huge problem for Matata, um, as the birds give off this kind of gamey smell. I don't know if that's perceptible to humans. Um, I know kakapo have this nice kind of, I think it's like a buttery smell. I can't remember. But they do have this um, this kind of smell that you can you can sniff. So I don't know if Matata also have a smell that can be perceived by humans. Um, but at least by dogs, they, they can smell this kind of gamey smell that is often... Um, I guess can be conflated with things like quail and that sort of stuff which are also found in New Zealand um, so dogs that are trained to hunt game or even conservation dogs um, will be able to seek them out pretty easily and so if it's a if it's a game dog then you know I guess it's more likely or actually I don't know how conservation dogs are even trained so it is you know entirely possible that both of those dogs will go straight after them and just you know ripped in pieces which is um, obviously not good. Um, unfortunately, Doc um, says that the techniques on how to manage the populations to help them thrive uh, beyond the usual kind of restoring habitat and killing the introduced predators uh, isn't well developed. So we don't really know a huge amount else on how to help them. Um, obviously, like restoring habitat and um, killing introduced predators, those are general things that they'll do for basically every species. That's a pretty universal way that you can help them um there are obviously things that we do for particular species due to particular quirks in their behavior or physiology um that we might do to try and bring them back that might be more effective for one particular species for a reason as opposed to another reason so you know based on their breeding habits for example we might try and do various things um for one species whereas if a species doesn't breed say at the same time or in the same way or have the same pre, uh, parental habits though you know certain techniques may not work well for them so if we know more about the species we can have more specific techniques that we can use to help them and and that's what i think it comes down to here is we just don't know enough about these guys so we don't have those specific tools that we can use to help them other than the ones that we know work pretty much universally however we we do know that restoring wetlands and doing predator control helps them a lot which is awesome um, and that's quite heavily evidenced um, by the increased population at ty point um, where both of these things have been occurring which is really really exciting especially for ty point which is where the aluminium smelter is down near invercargill um, because that place is bit of a bomb site i guess when it comes to conservation and that sort of thing um aluminium smelters are not known to be very conservation friendly especially if uh, you're listening to this at time of recording and uh, anyway aware of what's going on down there and how ty has conducted itself um in terms of the environment so um so yeah so that's really exciting to see um that you know even though we don't know much about them specifically and therefore don't have specific tools we do know that the tools that we use for basically everything else do work and do work really really well so that's really really good 
Since they are difficult to find and are hardly seen but often heard, Doc is developing call counts for fern birds. Um, so instead of um, having someone out um, actually looking for birds, you know, they'll have someone out there and actually try and spot them and they'll write down how many they see. Um, they'll have someone out either at dawn or dusk, which is usually where most birds in New Zealand, that's when they're most active in terms of calling. Um, they'll go out and actually call out to the birds and count how many they call back, which is really effective because they're really responsive to mimicked calls. So that's a really good way. Um, I guess that's when I'm talking about specific tools. That's kind of what I'm talking about is because we know that these guys are very responsive to mimicked calls and they talk to each other all the time and that sort of stuff. This is a way we can get accurate counts of how many there are because we know that they're very social. We know if we go out there and start mimicking their call, chances are they'll respond if they're there. So so this is a specific tool that we can use um, or at least Doc is developing. Alternatively, um, instead of, you know, if you don't have any volunteers nearby that want to get up at the arse crack of dawn to do this sort of work, um, alternatively, this can be done with a recorder that sits out in the bush for a few days and just records everything that hears. Uh, sorry, records everything that it hears. Um, of course, that has advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage being you have to listen to all of that shit when the recorder comes back um, and you might not find anything. Um, the advantage being some poor bastard doesn't have to go out there at a really bad, you know, a really awkward time um, and have to go and do that. That sort of thing is probably most employed um, in areas where it is very difficult to get to. Um, you, you know, in areas that you're probably only going to frequent once every month maybe maybe less um so if you haven't got an area that's very easily accessible using a recorder might be the easier way to do it rather than having a guy get up very early or or go quite late and try and listen to stuff um where it's potentially just really awkward or you know if you have to get out there you're likely driving in the dark either going out there or coming back depending on whether you're going at dawn or dusk so if it's quite a rugged area that's easy not very easy to access it could actually be dangerous to get out there in the dark um, or come back from there in the dark so um, so it could be a safety thing as well um, that's going on there um, but you know more tools in the toolkit more tools is more good definitely so in, in general, um, I, I think I talk about this a lot um, at the end of all of these sorts of episodes um, because I really want to advocate for this sort of stuff. Um, I, you know, as I said, I do this for a job. I do this for a living. Um, so I do get paid to do not quite this stuff, not getting at the ass crack of dawn to go listen to things. I don't get paid to do that. Um, but, you know, this is I, I don't just do this because I, uh, I'm not in these sorts of jobs because... Um, not just for the money, although the money's nice, it pays my rent, it's always good, um, but I do genuinely, um, you know, this is something that I'm genuinely passionate about, um, you know, the other genuinely passionate thing I'm doing other than history, um, so I do, I, I do want to encourage people to get involved um, and, and help, um, you know, even if it's not getting involved with the matata, getting involved with uh, conservation in general, engaging with nature trying to help bring it back because in New Zealand in particular um it's there's a lot of good work going out going on out there but it is also on the other hand really fucking dire um so, so I don't want to be all negative and stuff and I have been negative in other podcasts and that sort of thing before um but you know you can be part of the change you can be part of the good that is going on um in our 
um, you know, in our conservation space. And there is a lot of good going on. So the sort of things that you can obviously do, um, or perhaps not obviously, maybe you don't know what to do. Um, it's obvious to me, again, this is what I do for a living. Um, you know, it can range from joining a community group. Um, there's lots of community groups throughout the country, heaps. Um, and they all are trying to do various things um, with, uh, you know, trying to bring back birds or trying to bring back other um, species or, or lots to do with plants. My specialization, I guess, isn't um, to do with plants quite as much. My space is more trying to kill introduced predators. Um, that's my more... Uh, that's you know where my field is um, but there are lots that are trying to bring back native plants and things so if you're not a zoology guy if you're more of a botany sort of person there's all that stuff you can do, get involved with as well there's lots of people doing that um, but there's lots of community groups doing things like weeding planting predator control um, all sorts you can be the person that's going out there um, you know encourage you know trying to get out there and recruit more people or you know trying to of course if you're so way inclined you can be the one out there checking traps or doing the weeding it's not glamorous work but someone's got to do it um and you know if you don't have any sort of um i guess transferable skills um that perhaps could be of use a pair of hands is is worth quite a lot to these sorts of people A, a reliable and um constant pair of hands someone who they can rely on to go out and and do this mahi do this work is is absolutely invaluable to these people and i can tell you that you know from experience is is absolutely invaluable to these people but even if you can't go out there and do things all the time um there are other things you can do you can put a trap in your backyard um or you can just keep your cat indoors at night that's a huge a huge um thing you can do or keeping your dog on a leash as i said before dogs are a really big problem for martita so keeping your dog on a leash when you're going out into nature also helps a lot um you know every little bit helps and again even if you're you know even if you've got um you can go be the person who goes out there and checks traps and stuff or maybe you're a marketing guy or maybe you're an accounts you know you're an accounting sort of person or whatever these people need all sorts of different skills if you have a skill that you think they might need no matter how i guess minimal you think it might be um go go and and you want to try and help these people go out and 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 just get in touch with them that you might be surprised what they actually need you don't actually necessarily need for example if you're like me where you're not very good with your hands you're not very diy inclined and that sort of stuff they don't necessarily need that if you've you know if you're more inclined to be someone who's good with numbers or has a good brain of some kind or good at marketing or something else those are all skills that they need those are all things that they will will help them and, and you know that's um you know i again i encourage you to go out and, and do and get in touch with these people because they're really nice people and they really would like your help and and because you know you're all there for the same reason you want to help the environment you want to help conserve these birds and these other animals that you've got going around as well um you know that's all that's all part of it you're all passionate you're all there for the same reason um so if you do um want to find any of these groups or have any these sorts of do all these sorts of things um you can usually find them online they're pretty easy to find um but if you get super desperate um again 
I do this for a living. So if you want to flick me an email at the um, podcast website, that's historyaltiador.com, um, I can potentially point you in the right direction. Um, and I'm more than happy to do that. If you do flick me an email, I'll do my best to find uh, someone that's in your area. Um, otherwise, um, the next sort of, I guess, other logical place you could look is your local doc office, your local Department of Conservation, um, at least in New Zealand. Um, they will be able to probably direct you towards um, people that are doing good stuff um, as well. And, and of course, this is a New Zealand specific podcast, so I've, I've harped on about New Zealand community groups. But there's people doing this sort of shit all over the place, all over the world. So if you've listened to all of this and gone, yeah, man, that's cool, but not super relevant to me, even though I want to do that sort of stuff, I guarantee you there are people out there doing very, very similar things um, with uh, all sorts of, you know, trying to conserve whatever's in your area. So um, other things I've seen are things like mink in Hawaii. Um that's a huge thing. If you're in, if you just happen to be in Hawaii, hello, thanks for tuning in. Wow, who would have thought you'd be listening to this? Um, but if you are in Hawaii and you want to help with that sort of stuff, do it. It, it. Like you can go out there and you can. There will be people doing this sort of stuff. Actually, for a fact, I know there are people out there doing this sort of stuff. Mink's a big one in lots of different places. Actually, Sweden mink's a big one. Raccoon dog, and also in that sort of area, I think, big problem. Um, Anyway, we're getting a bit off topic. So if you do want to find these sorts of people, do this sort of uh, work, you know, it's volunteer, so you don't get paid for it. Um, your only compensation is the good feelings that you get and maybe a cup of tea in the feed afterwards. Um, but they're out there. And I highly encourage you to go and um, go and, and, and get involved, basically. But this is for Bird of the Year. Um, so if you do want to vote for the Matata, hopefully I have somewhat convinced you to put it on your list um, because they do use single transferable vote, um, which means you get to list your five uh, top birds that you would like to win um, win the crown, basically. Um, so if your top one doesn't win, then they put your vote to the second one and then if he doesn't win to the third one and so on um so that's really cool you get to choose five birds you don't have to narrow it down to one but it's still sometimes quite difficult to pick five <laughs> but yeah you can pick five which is awesome and then um and then your vote will go to one of those which is very exciting um so i'll put a link in the uh, show notes for the bird of the year award um if you want to go vote um i believe voting is open to anyone in the world actually i'm fairly sure that is the case they've had a couple of scandals of like russian botnets trying to do all sorts of different stuff with it um but yeah so i'll put a link in the description uh voting ends i actually have not noted it down in my notes so apologies for that um I'll, again i'll put it in the show notes uh in post um as to when the voting ends but usually it's at the end of october so uh if you're listening to this at november uh too late sorry um they've probably already announced it but again highly encourage you to vote if you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chin wag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltiroa.com. You can also find helpful resources there like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Tereo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, to atu hockey to my and i'll see you next time for episode 
100. Woo!